Kassat Podcast Network. Lions and Tigers and Bears MI is brought to you through a collaboration between the Mountain Plains ATTC and NFAR Tech. In episode 16, Paul and Amy discuss an MI-consistent approach regarding institutional and programmatic expectations. For episode resources, links to episodes, contact us, and other information, please visit the Lions and Tigers and Bears MI website at mtplainsattc.org forward slash podcast. Lions and Tigers and Bears, MI, an interactive podcast focused on the evidence-based practice of motivational interviewing, a method of communication that guides toward behavior change while honoring autonomy. I'm Amy Shanahan. And I'm Paul Warren. And we've worked together over the past 10 years. We've been facilitating MI learning collaboratives and providing trainings and coaching sessions focused on the adoption and refinement of MI we're also members of the Motivational Interviewing Network of Trainers. Join us in this adventure into the forest where we explore and get curious about what lies behind the curtain of MI. Hey, Paul. Hello, Amy. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you. Glad to be back and talking about our important and I think fascinating topic today. Mm. The title sounds really exciting. <laughs> Maybe not so exciting. <laughs> oh, and, just joking. I, yeah. And I do think it is an exciting topic. I do too. You know, it, it comes up a lot. So we don't want to keep listeners waiting too long. This comes up a lot in my trainings when I'm working with people or coaching people, this notion of how do you balance the institutional and programmatic expectations and still have an MI consistent approach and or practice. So what do you think about that? Do you hear stuff in your when you're working with folks about this? I do uh, very frequently. And I think an interesting component of this is that institutions and programs, I believe, set unrealistic expectations about, quote unquote, what MI is going to do for them. I also Mm -hmm. would just add that I think part of the challenge with that is in order I think for a program or staff within a program or an organization as a whole to really benefit from the implementation of this evidence-based practice, it's really necessary to have a realistic view of A, what the investment is that the staff and the organization need to make in order to really get something out of MI. And I think they also have to consider the limitations Mm. of this particular evidence-based practice because contrary to popular belief, 
it is not a silver bullet. Yeah. And it is not an evidence-based practice for every conversation. It's not the only tool in the toolbox. Absolutely. It is a tool in the toolbox and it's not the tool in the toolbox. Yeah. So what would you say to folks that you've been working with when they're in your training and they're all excited and they're jazzed up about it and want to practice and there's some rub there maybe in their hearts or in their minds about how do they go back to their workplace and navigate whatever's going on for them. And I think we could talk about a lot of things. I have some ideas about what goes on from the feedback that I've been given, but mm -hmm. you're talking from a big umbrella, the global perspective of, you know, having the organization understand what this evidence-based practice is about, what it's mm -hmm. used for and how, and how can the organization support it? In the meantime, what can we do to support the people to go back to their organizations and have these conversations if we're not the ones having it with the leaders? Your question is a really complex one. And, and I think you laid it out well in the sense that we're, we're looking at larger systems as well as, and I really appreciate because I think it's relevant to our listeners. And my hope is that administrators may be listening to this conversation about motivational interviewing and uh, as well as people who are actually going to be practicing or using motivational interviewing. Right. So, so I guess looking at that sort of that micro example of the participants participant participating in a training, I think it can be really helpful to go backward and, and kind of zoom out to the larger picture first. Mm -hmm. and, and really this is kind of uh, a call to arms is too strong of a way to put it, but <laughs> it's a, uh, it's perhaps a plea to anyone who's going to be offering MI training within a, a program or an organization is to really endeavor to have a realistic conversation with whomever may be contracting you to do that yeah. about the expectations that the organization or the program may have and about the investment really required to achieve particular results. And I'll just throw out one specific example, which is if the organization approaches you and says something to the effect of, yeah, we'd love for you to do a day-long training or a six-hour training, and we want all of our providers to be practicing to the level of fidelity, uh, and they say they don't say we're going to do anything after the training, they don't say that they're going to provide any kind of coding uh, or observation or review of any of their tapes what they want is not going to meet what of, they think they want. <laughs> right. Well, <laughs> unless they're willing to make the investment to do sure. everything in order to achieve that, they're, they're really not going to get it. So I think helping organizations, institutions, and programs to be realistic. Now, a, a, a micro example of that might be if your goal is to simply reduce how directive your providers are 
and focus more on a client-centered kind of conversation, and you're only willing to invest a day to do that, you might be able to get some traction around that mm. change. Yeah. I was thinking of an example my in my experience working in a big hospital system where we were practicing and, and you're familiar with it. And we were practicing and having these practice groups. And then we started to expand beyond our service lines, we called them and wanted to do an orientation and let the new hire employees understand that we were interested in having this MI approach, this MI consistent approach. So we, we, were able to standardize that. And mm -hmm. my boss at the time was fabulous. She was supportive. She um, always encouraged us to, to move forward. And I remember having a conversation with her and invited her to come and, and sit in some of the workshops and be part of some of the trainings. And she said, now, why would I do that? Huh? She was a busy vice president, right? And I said, well, it's one thing that you're supporting us and, and, and that's fabulous. It'll even get us more traction if you really were walking with us and you understood what was going on. Mm -hmm. And at the very least you could become a better listener. Right. So she was like, what's in it for me. Um, so we were talking about that, like, okay, it's one thing that we got the support and we did. And, and I've always been grateful for her and her name is Ellie in case she's ever listening that, she really supported us and our work and wanted to know what's in it for me. Why should I be a part of it? So that was just another piece of the story about how to have that conversation mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. with your boss. Absolutely. And, and, you know, let's face it, folks, busy vice presidents, presidents, executive directors, medical directors, they may think, you know, we're bringing you in as the training team because we want you to take care of this. And I love what you said, Amy, about the educational goal and the quote unquote practice goal was to create and maintain sort of an environment of an MI consistent approach, which is not the same thing as practicing motivational interviewing. Right. Because some of us were doing that and we knew that we needed to continue the momentum and not, you know, have sustainability and, and continue to build the practitioners that were in our practice group. And we needed some organizational support. So it started on the flip side, at the local level, at the ground level, where we were practicing and we were making changes and we were doing quality projects and gathering some data um, and then started to bring in the, the leadership and saying, we want to operationalize this. Mm -hmm. And the thing I think that's really uh, wise and insightful about that approach is that supervisors, administrators, executives, they're under some real pressure in terms of they need to meet particular numbers. They need to hit particular benchmarks of, you know, increments of service delivered. And am I, and certainly a universal, am I consistent approach 
is a wonderful way to really focus on engagement. So to be able to sort of support people's work in the area of engagement makes great sense. And let's also be very clear that that is different than the practice of motivational interviewing around building motivation, resolving ambivalence around a particular behavioral change goal. So one is kind of like level one, which how wonderful to have a service provision community that is able to create that environment of engagement, that am I consistent approach, and then helping folks to understand that you can build upon that foundation to intentionally integrate the practice of motivational interviewing when a behavioral change goal is part of that conversation. And we talked about that very difference between the consistent approach versus the MI practice in, in one of the other episodes. And you highlighted here again, and it's so important, which was part of our intention as an, as a group to sell it to the organization, if you will, that we wanted this approach and why. And I was thinking as you were talking that if we took a different approach and said, Hey boss, could we go to this many days of training and have this many hours of coaching and continue to practice during our lunch for like ever <laughs> without any teeth in the game? But we did as leaders in this organization do those things and we built up the practice group and we started to collect information. And a couple of years in, we actually did showcase our quality improvement numbers. And I can paraphrase the CEO who whispered to the medical director at the time, why aren't we doing this everywhere? So it was this balance of doing the right thing for the right reasons, gathering the information and sharing it with the organizational leadership to let them know that this was worth it. There's a return on our investment um, versus starting cold and saying, we want to spend all this time building our skills in order to engage people. Because as we know, as practitioners, as we get better, the engagement happens. We don't have mm -hmm. to wait until we get to X proficiency. Mm -hmm. We're getting better as we go. And that's part of the data that we actually collected. As our clinicians were getting better, we watched their show rate of their the people they were serving. Mm. Mm. And, you know, I, I, I think it's important to define what we mean by that they're getting, quote unquote, better, meaning that their their skills are becoming uh, more refined. Yes. They're, they're having better rates of engagement, and they're also maybe helping folks to really achieve identified goals. Right. And, you know, I, I want to underline something that you said, Amy, because you said, you know, the whole idea and any, any administrator or any boss or anybody who cares about the program or the work of the organization is going to say, okay, if we're going to make this investment, what are we going to get out of it? And, you know, I think that there are multiple gains in realistically integrating 
this evidence-based practice into the work. And certainly I would say uh, you're probably going to have better retention Mm. and you're going to have better retention of the participants or the patients as well as possibly the workers. Mm -hmm. Because one of the other returns that I think can come with this practice is that workers are less likely to burn out and they're going to feel that they're less under siege because they're not being directed with their clients and getting into battles. So they may feel more satisfied. They may be better retained. If they're able to continue to do the work and people are able to continue to receive the services and engage, they're potentially going to reach their life and health goals. And then the organization is going to be able to document that they are actually achieving the mission that they've laid out. Yeah, such important points that there are benefits that we don't have to wait to say, here's the list of things that you could expect to happen. I can share from experience that we felt that momentum grow Mm-hmm. as we there was a small group of people that were practicing and then we engaged the supervisors and we continued to build and i i will be honest not everybody wanted to be a part of the party <laughs> not everybody wanted to mm-hmm. invest in the practice and come together for various reasons and at the same time that momentum was building organically it there was no mandated you have to do this and we were supportive that this is the direction we want to go in. I think to your point that many of the practitioners that were a part of this, they didn't want to be telling people what to do. They wanted to be effective. They wanted to guide people through their change process. And that's the language that we used. Hmm. Which is totally consistent because it's the language of MI. Yeah. And, and, you know, I'm curious, would it be okay if I asked you a question? Yes, of course. So if if I were a provider mm-hmm. and I were coming to you and I said, you know, Amy, I know that you train on motivational interviewing and I really would like to get my staff trained up. Uh, we're having some problems with uh, meeting our numbers. We're having difficulties, uh, you know retaining people in services. And I know that MI, I mean, I don't know a whole lot about MI, but I know a little bit about it. And I know that MI really can work. So, you know, I think we have about three hours that we can (laughs) dedicate to our staff. So I'm wondering if I, as a provider of services and an administrator, as somebody who has the resources to bring in a trainer, what would you, how would you respond to me if that was my kind of explanation <laughs> of what was going on? Well, it's it's interesting. I don't even feel like this is a test because this conversation happens a lot mm-hmm. where people want a one and done workshop or only a few hours. How I approach it is one, I can offer that to you and this is what you would get out of that. Perhaps your staff would have fun. They would have a good essence of the 
spirit and some skills of motivational interviewing. And I hope enough to want to come back for more. And I think it's important to be honest and transparent about what they won't get. It won't result in changing all those things. And then I start down my <laughs> list of what would be beneficial and how this works. And I usually start off by saying what I tell most people is if you have a pot of money, and I don't mean necessarily just green money, because sometimes it's just resources, resources, time to let your staff do these things. I would say, don't focus on the six, eight hour, one day training, save that money and spend it over six months or, or 12 months or however big the pot is or how small the pot is, because people might be more engaged if they can try it on for themselves, practice some things. I trust that many providers know a lot about the skills and strategies already. So I often start there and say, if I were to take the money that you are going to pay me to do this, I would say spend it across the time versus a one and done workshop with 50 people in it. It, it might get you more bang for your buck. And that's where I start. Hmm. What about you? What, what do you think? I'm, I'm really interested in what you have to say and look forward to other folks' feedback as well, because I might need a new shtick. <laughs> no, I, I, you're, I think, I think your shtick is pretty <laughs> comprehensive. Uh, what, what I would, I guess how I would approach that is I would reflect back to the person mm -hmm. that they have, you know, X amount of time to devote to this particular training and to this particular type of training. I would want them to clearly understand, like you said, what the limitations of that would be and what the realistic benefits of that could be. And I'll just also add that I wouldn't try and dissuade them from doing that. Right. Uh, but I would want them to enter into it with a realistic expectation that after devoting three hours of training over perhaps Zoom, or even if it was in person, that you it would be very unrealistic to think that your folks were going to walk away and be able to uh, practice motivational interviewing to fidelity. And the thing that's interesting about that is sometimes the response that I've gotten when I say that is, well, my folks already know how to do MI. That's right. <laughs> and 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 I acknowledge that you, you know, obviously you have a, a very skilled staff. That's wonderful. And MI is a verifiable practice where you can use a validated instrument to actually determine if somebody's doing MI and what skills they might be using and what areas of refinement might benefit them. Mm. And again, it goes back to what we've talked about in an earlier uh, podcast episode is that people equate the use of the core communication skills, open-ended questions, affirmations, reflections, and summaries as the practice of MI. And right. of course, we know that that is not 
the case. So I would try and gently provide a little bit of clarity around perhaps that misconception. Yeah. And just just because, you know, John is asking open-ended questions doesn't necessarily mean that John is practicing motivational interviewing. And we get that when people come to the training. I'm just here for a refresher. I've been using MI. Of course, it's a parallel that the certainly that the organization then will say the same thing. Oh, the, our folks are using MI. We just need a refresher. I had a recent request for a training of trainers because the group of people are using MI, they're going to now train it. And you and I both know that you can practice motivational interviewing and the skill of providing training is a whole different ball of wax, but we won't dive too deep into that rabbit hole. And mm -hmm. I, I, I really think it's important to underscore too that honoring a person's choice and request is important as well. Again, like you said, with that informed consent, what you won't get and what you will get. And I certainly do deliver if someone says, well, I want this three-hour training. Mm -hmm. um, and I go in with great intention to give people a good experience because I trust that they know some things. I trust that they might be, some of them might be engaged enough to want more. And, you know, I, I try to practice what I preach and believe that the the organization might come back for more when they're ready for it. And, and right now this is what they're thinking is best for their organization. Right. Mm. You know, I, I agree with you. I, I will give them that three hour training and I, I have to admit, you know, because this is our podcast and I want to be honest, I have to admit that yes, I will, I will want them. I will want to offer them uh, the best possible experience. I won't try and cram within that three hours more than I think that three hours can actually bear. Mm -hmm. And, and I have to admit that my heart will break a little bit when that mm -hmm. training is over, because I don't have control as to whether these folks will get additional MI support or not. And my fear is, and this is why my heart breaks a little bit, is that they will then go back and really with, with great passion and uh, intent want to do motivational interviewing and then feel that they're alone and lost because mm. they're not able to turn that three-hour experience into the ability to actually practice. And I'll just add one other thing, which is that one of the things that I try to help institutions or programs to consider is that knowledge, being able to tell me what the four uh, components of MI spirit, the core communication skills and the four tasks of MI knowledge of that is a wonderful foundation and it is no indication of the ability to actually do the practice and most training that people get that doesn't have a post training practice component most training people get is about information with a tiny tiny bit of practice opportunity embedded in a sea of acronyms 
and hmm. information about the evidence-based practice of motivational interviewing. Yeah, you know, it makes me think of a going back into an organization that I was very familiar with and they practiced motivational interviewing for many years and they certainly had attrition and new people and they invited us to come in to do some advanced practice stuff. And to your point about the acronyms and the knowledge test, I said, I said, well, let's go in and see what they remember, what they know. And they couldn't come up with the words. They couldn't come up with the acronyms. And when you heard them practice and try things on with each other, they did, they were doing, they were consistent with their approach to MI. And, and I won't get into too much of the detail about their MI practice because I wasn't watching them with an individual. So it gets a little complicated, but to underscore your point, they were being it for the most part. I'm generalizing a lot here. Mm -hmm. And to the point that, you know, I, uh, I could regurgitate the four aspects of the spirit. That doesn't mean I'm doing it. I could actually train the four aspects of the spirit very accurately um, and not necessarily exhibit the, the behaviors that follow through with those. So the practice, as we say over and over again, throughout our episodes are so important. And, you know, there was one thing that you were saying that I wanted to, I was thinking about the flip story where an individual does come to the training. We offer a training. They're out in the community. They sign up for our workshop and they show up and they want to keep practicing. And yet they have a hunch or a sense that their organizational values or expectations doesn't complement their use of motivational interviewing. And I'm wondering what kind of conversations you have with people that maybe you experience that have that same kind of discord, if you will, mm -hmm. they want to practice. They, they ask questions specifically. Well, how can I honor someone's autonomy? For example, when I work in an abstinence based uh, philosophical program that says you can't use any substances while you're in treatment here, mm -hmm. um, how do I honor someone's autonomy? So that's just one example of the, what I hear from an individual. Yeah, it's it's an essential example that I think speaks to the dynamic of when the practice of MI, which is not about getting somebody to do what you want them to do, and it's the the skill of being able to balance three agendas simultaneously and to do that in an MI spirited way. There's from an MI perspective, there's the client or the patient's agenda. There may be your agenda as the provider, and there may be the organizational agenda or the programmatic agenda. Like you said, it's an abstinence only program. And again, it is possible to practice motivational interviewing in an abstinence-only program and still be true to the practice of motivational interviewing because you may need to bring up the substance use topic, even though the person may not want to talk about it. And there's a way to do that that's in an MI-consistent manner. You may, as the provider, 
have a suggestion or something you'd like to suggest that the person do. And again, they may have made it very clear to you that they're not really interested. And there is also an am I consistent way that you as a provider can offer a suggestion that will still respect this person's autonomy. So we are really getting into how you can skillfully and intentionally practice motivational interviewing. And that really does require post-training practice and reflection on that practice and feedback on that practice in order to be able to balance that seeming institutional clash or programmatic clash that could be there. It can it can be done. And it's a very high level skill set. Yeah. We were having a conversation about this in one of the workshops with some folks that we are coaching. And it reminds me of an example that one of my mentors shared where um he was in a locked facility and the patient person getting care wanted a specific type of medication. And I, I believe that this person artfully and with an MI consistent approach had a conversation with the person about why the institution was not going to provide this medication and gave them information and with permission and used ask, tell, ask, and, you know, framing all this conversation in an MI consistent approach at the same time, letting the person patient know what the limitations were and then offering back the person's autonomy. It's up to you. You don't have to stay. The choice is this or that, and it's not the medication that you want or not this thing that you want. And, and we had a conversation about that in this workshop, in this conversation, and folks were able to come up with their own language about how they would navigate a conversation. For example, a person that was on methadone maintenance and wanted to go on vacation for weeks and didn't have privileges to take, you know, a full month's worth of medication. So how do you navigate that conversation in an MI consistent approach and still be able to honor the person's autonomy to make the choice, Mm -hmm. either this or that. They may not be the greatest choices that the person wants. So these are things that like you said, it really gets into this really high level skill of navigating a conversation in a consistent approach, using informed consents. What what are the limitations? And you know, we don't do that here. So you're not going to be able to receive that. What would you like to do next? How can we go about helping you achieve your goal now? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know, for folks who you know, this may be, I don't want to make the assumption that anybody listening to this particular episode of the podcast has possibly heard any of the other episodes. And I just want to pause a minute and be very clear about the distinction that Amy and I are making about an am I consistent approach, the way you interact with that person, the way you engage them the way you respect their autonomy and the practice of motivational interviewing, which includes that in addition to you are intentionally guiding the conversation around 
a client-centered behavioral change goal that there's ambivalence about, and you're exploring and resolving that ambivalence as well as identifying and increasing or strengthening the person's motivations for that specific change, because that is the practice of motivational interviewing. An MI consistent approach is a way of being, and that way of being is married to the practice of MI when we are specifically focusing on resolving ambivalence and building motivation, strengthening motivation for a particular change. And you mentioned the other episodes, and we just did about the consistent approach versus MI practice, which you just summarized so well. We also have an episode where we explored the mandated, the person that's mandated to services and how do you care for them with an MI consistent approach and with practicing MI. So, so there's a reference point there because that's part of the conversation that comes up as well when people are working in an organization that um, serves the courts or serves the justice services and how do they navigate that conversation with a person who has to choose between what a probation officer is mandating and honoring someone's autonomy and supporting their choices uh, we get this conversation a lot from folks. How do how do I navigate that? And it's really having that conversation with them. And these are the choices that you have. What would you choose? And people choose to come to treatment, mm. to come for services when they could have chosen something else. So now it's drilling down. Now what? Well, the the probation officer, for example, is suggesting that you can't use any substances, including alcohol. What do you think about that? What do you think you'll do now? Because that's not what you thought of earlier and and navigating that conversation um, using the skills and strategies of motivational interviewing. Mm. You know, it's it's very tempting to want to go down uh, the road of practice, how we might navigate, quote unquote, these conversations about a particular behavior change within a particular context mm -hmm. and maybe and maybe a context that is more directive or mandated. And I want to zoom back out for a minute because sure. I keep I keep thinking of these administrators and I keep <laughs> and I keep thinking of these folks who have resources and they really want their staff to be equipped with the tools that their staff need in order to retain folks and they're working within limitations too. Right. And, and I guess the thing, if, if there was a broad message that I really would like to communicate to everybody about this is that be realistic about what training can do for you and if it's possible, and Amy, you gave such a good example earlier about how when you have a particular uh, monetary resource or you have other uh, resources that are available like time and, and all that, think about where you're going to put the emphasis. Because if you want people to be able to do something, you've got to give them an opportunity to practice.
And you have to think about the integration and the refinement of that practice is going to require time and multiple points of attention as opposed to a three-hour dive and then jump into the water. Mm-hmm. So so I often will say to people, hey, if this is the if this is the full balance of the resource you have, let's look at how you can build in practice support following whatever the training you might want to do is because you really want to get traction in this. And again, if you only can invest in the training and it's a limited amount of time, let's scale down the curriculum in such a way that we can really communicate to people how they can be with somebody and retain them. Mm. You know, and I liked earlier, you were pointing out using the skills when you're having these conversations with administrators, reflecting back, letting them know, and actually asking them to elaborate on their expectations. Because I, I think from my experience and to your examples, some people think they're going to get certain things out of a three hour workshop. Mm-hmm. And it could do us a disservice by saying, yes, we could deliver that. We can offer the workshop, but that's not going to get these expectations. So practicing motivational interviewing with the person, uh, asking open questions and asking them to elaborate and giving them information based on what we know. For example, it would be helpful for me to give you some information. Can I give you some more information about what we know about workshops and trainings that going to a workshop and even going to a three-day training may not get you what you're looking for unless you embed, like you said, Paul, some way to put in the practice and feedback that goes along with that. Mm -hmm. And they'll be able to get some skills. What do you think about that? Would you be willing to consider that? Would you like to talk more about that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because again, our goal is to really help people to use this approach and this practice in a way that is going to benefit the people that are receiving the services. And, you know, I don't want to promote false expectations about that. And, you know, Amy, something that you just said really took me back to the beginnings of when I was working with a team of people to develop uh, training and post-training support for social service providers in the New York City area. And when we first piloted this program, we basically had a five-day training that you're laughing at me. You can't see that, folks. But now Amy, I unmuted so you did. could hear my laugh. Yeah, yeah. We did a five-day training, and we had two boosters that followed that, and there was monthly mm-hmm. post-training uh, support for a year, and and folks had to sign up and commit to this. And people were also. Uh, to be part of this program, they also had to do 
three audio recordings that they received feedback on. It was incredibly labor intensive. Mm -hmm. And we quickly found that there was a great overemphasis on the training. So the training significantly, we reduced it in size, even in the second year of this program. And the uh, audio recordings, we reconfigured how people did the audio recordings so that we didn't have to worry about confidentiality. So we had them do mock recordings and we limited it to three 20 minute mock recordings over a nine month period. Now, the reason I mention this is because, again, what we found in our work was yes, it was great for everybody to be in a baseline training to have facility and understanding around this evidence-based practice. But where the rubber really met the road was when they started applying it to their real-life conversations and they had a place to come and process what that application was like. And I'll, I'll just add one additional detail, which I added probably, I guess, in the sixth year of this program, was a volitional component. And let me say what I mean by that. Please do. <laughs> which was that in order to be in this program, the only commitment that the organization and the participants had to make the only commitment they had to make was they had to agree to participate in a six-hour training as a group. If they fulfilled that commitment, they could opt into getting six one-hour post-training support sessions. So they had the training. They could then consider, oh, well, that was the training. Do we want to do the post-training? I can tell you every group that I've ever worked with has opted to do the post-training. And after they've completed the first six, which takes place over a six-month period, the six one-hour post-trainings, they then could opt to make mock audio recordings. So that's the volitional piece of it. Mm. As they've gotten into it, they could then choose to go further if they wanted to. And the reason we've been testing out this model is we have found that people will opt in for an additional six months. So now they've been working for over a year on this. And what I can tell you is, as someone who facilitates those conversations, their ability to engage people increases and they're able to enhance their skills and actually practice motivational interviewing because they're getting group feedback as well as individual feedback. You know what I love about that model is it's am I consistent? People have a choice to opt in versus this is the model. We're mandating you to do this. This is, 
we're saying that you have to do these things. That's how you're going to gain the skills that it's a layered approach. And what the other piece about why I think that that's so artful. And, and I don't know if you've experienced this. I, I think it's somewhat consistent across some th that I hear from other MI coaches is that we end up realizing, Oh boy, I'm not doing as, good as I thought I was, because I thought I was using MI. And then when I start to get this feedback in coaching, I realize, whoa, I wasn't doing what I thought I was doing. And it almost feels like I'm getting worse and not better. And people can feel vulnerable in that time. And um, it's nice to know that you have that cohort that comes together. You have these conversations. Yeah, of course, I'm going to feel a little clunky about it. And I know that you and me and Billy Joe and some others we went through that process where we were working together and watching each other and going, Ooh, that sounded good. I'm not that good. And kind of judging each other, but sticking it out because we were able to process. And you were, you said a place to come back to, to process your real practice of the skills while you're talking with the people you're serving or your family or friends as mm -hmm. you go through this. And, you know, not to, scare folks to think that it has to be a five-day training in this layered approach of that many. I did a similar project with a three-day training with follow-up practices and recordings and feedback. And I wish that I had that opt-in approach. And I could say that people were pretty consistent showing up because they applied to it. They knew it wasn't a mandate. They, mm -hmm. they committed to it out of the gate. But I think that opt-in approach would be really helpful um, in a more MI consistent way versus saying you have to come to these three days, then you have to do these things, then you have to do these things. So it's a little bit more consistent, a lot more consistent in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, and I'll just clarify that what we've really come to is we reduced that five days to simply six hours of baseline training. And it's often done in two-hour increments over Zoom with time in between each increment. Mm. So uh, again, if, if there was a broad stroke that I would throw out to organizations, programs, institutions who really want to meaningfully and and realistically engage in the practice of motivational interviewing is that whomever you choose to work with to support your staff, really be very candid with them about what your realities are that you, you know, you, you have this particular time slot or you have this particular amount of time because hopefully that person is going to be able to collaborate with you to come up with a training and post-training practice support plan that will truly fit within the realities of your program or your organization and really meet your staff's needs. And I would add as a wrap to go again to the flip of the individual or the individuals who are learning and practicing and want more, and yet they're, maybe their organization isn't there yet supporting or inviting it. Um, 
for us, I remember over, it's got to be 12 years, maybe 13, the fish gets bigger 50 years ago. <laughs> when we started practicing together, we did it because we wanted to. And we found a few people and then a few more people. And, and we had this small group, about six or seven people that wanted to come together to practice, whether it was on our own time or during lunch. So there's an option there for folks to continue the momentum. If you went to a workshop or you went to a training or mm -hmm. you're interested in continuing your practice and yet you don't yet have that institutional support or the supervision, mm -hmm. um, there's an opportunity to just reach out to folks and ask. And I know folks who are listening if you wanted to email in and ask questions about how to find practice groups in your area, it just takes one question and that pebble hits the, the water and it starts to ripple and, and we could find other people maybe in your area that would be willing to practice with you. So I just am my, I think my fixing reflex is kicking in. <laughs> I, I'm really hoping that individuals who want to continue their practice can find a way and, and look for resources to be able to do that while maybe they're having a collaborative conversation back at their organization. Absolutely. And, you know, as you were saying that, Amy, I was also thinking about many of the folks that I've had the opportunity to be in learning communities with, and they talk about the intensity and the, uh, the pressure of the work that they're doing and, and, you know, may not feel like they have a moment's additional time to be able to invest in being involved in some sort of practice situation. And the thing that I would say to them is if motivational interviewing is something that interests you, and if motivational interviewing is something that you really want to enhance your capacities with, it it does, the re a reality of it is, is it does require practice and it does require some degree of feedback on that practice. And it can be helpful to get that feedback from folks who are also practicing motivational interviewing. I, I, I feel for many supervisors that I've had the opportunity to work with in learning communities because they very candidly acknowledge that you know, they don't see clients and this is something that they need to learn how to be able to give am I consistent feedback because it's not, it's not currently in their wheelhouse. Mm. And one of the realities with this particular evidence-based practice, it requires the doing of it, the reflection on what's been done, and then some sort of feedback conversation about what's been done as a way to enhance and build what you're doing. It's a, it's a really nice layering approach that as an organization, you can use the MI approach to have conversations as an individual, you can use the MI approach to have the conversations. And the important thing to know is that having that approach is not alone the practice, that the practice is definitely a more intensive 
collaborative conversation that you have with each other that where there's a coach and a feedback and a feedback loop, whether you're a supervisor or a leader or an individual using it with clients. Yeah. And we will uh, talk and we have talked about supervision and uh, MI, and I think we're going to be talking about it more coming down the road. Mm -hmm. Um, But certainly, as Amy said earlier, folks, if you have questions about this, or if you just feel like I'm not really sure how to go forward with this, I mean, Amy and I probably don't have your answers, but we can maybe help you find a resource Mm -hmm. that would, you know, further you in your process, or if you're an administrator or an executive and you happen to hear this conversation and you want to find out more, please do reach out to us and we will do our best to either link you with somebody or, or, you know, let you know what we, you know, may or may not know in regard to that. Yeah, we really love your feedback and your questions. It actually helps guide us where we go next in some of the episodes as well. Well, I'm really glad that we had a chance to talk about this today, Amy, because this is an aspect that gets talked about some, and I think it's helpful to really spend the time that we've spent focusing on institutional or programmatic expectations so that administrators as well as folks who are providing services don't feel like they're being pitted against each other mm-hmm. or that they're they're getting caught between the rock and the hard place mm. with this particular evidence-based practice. Nice. Yes. The intention is to have a collaborative conversation. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed it, Paul. I hope others will sign in and sign on and let us know what they think. Yes, we would greatly appreciate that. And Amy, I'll look forward to talking to you uh, down the road. You too. Bye, Paul. Bye, Amy. Thanks for listening to episode 16 of Lions and Tigers and Bears MI. Future episodes, Paul and Amy invite an MI provider to participate on the podcast and discuss using an MI consistent approach in supervision. Cassette Podcast Network. This podcast has been brought to you by the Cassatt Podcast Network, located within the Center for the Application of Substance Abuse Technologies at the University of Nevada, Reno. For more podcasts, information, and resources, visit cassatt.org.